So how in the world are all of you doing tonight? You're doing great? Is this PA system working like God wanted it to? So great to see you tonight. And just for the sake of the record, I want you to know that after the service this morning, somebody straightened me out and pointed out that there's a difference between Michigan and Michigan State. Blessed are those who know that distinction. (laughs) I was wrong this morning. When it comes to sports, I'm not much into sports. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you've heard about it this far east, but in Chicago we have a baseball team called the Cubs. And um, they had a bad year. In fact, uh, several weeks ago, you know, the World Series is just over a couple of weeks before that when they were still playing. According to the Trib, their pitching machine pitched a (laughs) no-hitter. Many years ago, before they won the World Series, we could actually buy a Cub t-shirt that says, anyone can have a bad century. (laughs) So here we are today. You know, one other story about uh, Iowa. There was a guy who called the church and said, uh, I'd like to speak to the chief hog of the trough. Thank God for quick-thinking secretaries, because this secretary said, you know, I think you should be more respectful of the pastor than that. And he said, yeah, I guess so. But he said, I do plan to give the church $50,000. She said, oh, just hang on. She said, Porky just walked through the door. Now, I want to say a word about the books that are available tonight that God wants you to buy. (laughs) We Will Not Be Silenced, and uh, it uh, deals with all the issues, critical race theory, the sexualization of children, how Marxism, well, yesterday evening was basically a summary of that book. It's not the only one that's out there. There's another one I've written, The Church in Babylon, which has a chapter on the whole transgender movement, distinguishes the role of the state from the church, dealing with immigration issues. A lot of issues that are swirling around in the culture, and there are some of those back there too. I forget the other books that are out there, but one I don't forget, and that is the one that my lovely wife Rebecca wrote, entitled Awesome Bible Verses Every Kid Should Know. Now, don't be misled by that title, it isn't just verses from the Bible. For years, Rebecca said to me, you know, the kids know the stories. They know the story of Jonah and Noah and uh, all of the, uh, you know, David and the Goliath. What they don't know is doctrine. So she read a, read a book, or wrote a book, I should say, for about um, age 6 to 12, something like that, kids like that, on doctrine. Here's a page at their level with an illustration of what it means when we talk about creation, God, redemption, grace, and about 20 other different issues. And God has blessed that book. If you're a grandparent or a parent and you have kids that age, tonight we're making available to you the book entitled Awesome Bible verses every kid should know. There's another one out there, by the way, it's just coming to mind now, that I wrote. It's a smaller book entitled A Practical Guide for Praying Parents of How You Pray Scripture 
for your children. And the illustration there of a woman in the New Testament who simply would not give, no, give up and say no for an answer. So all that is available. Apparently, you know, the folks back there will take American money. And um, though it's becoming less and less valuable, invest it now while it still is worth something. And of course, if you write out a check, it's to Moody Media. I get absolutely no, um, no uh, indication. I receive nothing back from the kind of commitment and the kind of thing that you buy. It supports our media ministry. As we explained last night, I think it was 20 different countries in three different languages, so you help our media ministry. But the books, I'm sure, are at a discount. Take advantage of that tonight. Now tonight, I'm going to speak to you on the topic of suffering. It was Helmut Tillichy, who was a German theologian, who apparently made the statement that Americans don't see suffering as part of life. It is to be avoided at all costs, and they have no real category for suffering because you're not supposed to suffer. All of life is avoiding suffering. Tonight I'm speaking on the topic of suffering for Jesus Christ. I'm going to begin with a notice that was put on the doorsteps of people in the Middle East. And then we'll talk about America, but first of all, the Middle East. How would you like to have this on your doorstep? In the name of Allah and his final prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the true religion of Islam will arise in your area. You cannot stop Allah's will. We have been watching your family. We have seen you go to church and seen you pray to your false god. We know you are infidels, and we will deal with you as the Holy Quran declares. Surah 9, 27. Fight those who have been given the scripture and believe not in Allah or the last day, nor follow the religion of truth. If you and your family do not leave your false religion and follow Islam, you will be killed. Your sons will be slaughtered and your daughters will become Muslim wives, bearing sons who will fight for Allah in this region. Your only option is to flee tonight. Leave your home and everything behind it. Allah uh, Abakar. I mispronounced that, but you get the point. Did you know that the reason that Islam believes that you should leave your home and give it to Islam is because, and by the way, I've written a book which is not out there. It's entitled The Cross in the Shadow of the Crescent because Rebecca and I were visiting the seven churches of Revelation and we discovered there are no churches, there are only mosques. And I wrote a book to show what those non-existent churches have to say to the American church about Islam. The title of that book, The Cross in the Shadow of the Crescent. But I point out that in Islam, the whole world belongs to Allah. So we're all squatters. They can take over territory because it already belongs to them. Everything belongs to Allah. So flee tonight. Thankfully, we don't have that kind of persecution in America. We have to think in terms of the folks, though, that do. But we have a different kind of persecution. When I was speaking at the ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom, this summer, and we hobnobbed with attorneys for a week, on our final day, we had breakfast with a woman who was defending two women in one of the chain stores that you would recognize. 
because all of the people who work there were supposed to wear a pin, uh, the symbol of Black Lives Matter and the LGBTQ plus community. And uh, they refused because they said, we don't support these organizations and they were fired even though they had worked in the store for 20 years. We're coming to a point in America where you, that you cannot hide. And by the way, there are several of you who I know pray for me. Many people say, well, we pray for you. Some really, really do pray. If God ever blesses you as a result of something I've said or something I've written, always give him the glory. It has nothing to do with me but also say a prayer. I am writing another book entitled No Place to Hide, Standing for Christ in a Collapsing Culture. It deals with a lot of other issues that of course I can't go into tonight, but uh, the point to be made is we are living at a time when there is a high cost connected to being a Christian. People losing their jobs over their convictions. The idea that we have as Americans that the government should always support freedom of religion, that we should be able to uh, discuss and interact and give our point of view, those days are over in many different vocations and so forth. Let's take, for example, the vaccine mandates, which I mentioned, I think, last night. Again, you can be pro-vaccine, but anti-universal mandate Let's just take that. Maybe I mentioned this last night that there are organizations now that when you apply for a job, you are asked about your vaccination status. And you are not completely vaccinated until you take the booster and there are more variants that are coming down the pike. What does that portend for the future? And all of this contact tracing and the things that we have. I hate to be a pessimist, I like to think of myself as a realist, but we are in for some very dark times that we are not used to. Now here's what we're going to do this evening. I'm going to give you eight or nine statements from the scripture regarding suffering for Christ. This is a very simple message. I've always prayed that God would keep me simple. My staff at Moody Church told me stop praying it. He's answered that question long ago. <laughs> but it's going to be simple, but we have to rethink it. After all, we think it's the worst thing that can happen, and Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you. So we're going to go through a lot of passages tonight, most of them I'll quote. We will turn to one or two of them, and I'm sort of simply stirring up your pure mind by way of remembrance. Here we go. Number one, we are called to suffer. That's our calling. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that uh, hates me, it'll hate you. Are we greater than Jesus? He asks, he says, is the servant greater than his master? The answer is no. So why should we not expect to suffer for our faith and our convictions? When Paul was converted, Ananias went to him, you remember that story which I'm summarizing, and Ananias said, God said to Ananias, go tell Paul what he is being called to suffer for my name's sake. 1 Timothy 3.12, all who live godly 
in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And then the other day, I was reading First Peter, and I don't think I had really seen this before. First Peter chapter 2, and um, I'm turning to that, and it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you're beaten for it and endure? But if you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. Philippians chapter 1 is coming to mind where the Apostle Paul says these words. He says, For unto you it is given in the name of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. We love the first part of the verse. For you it is given in the name of Christ to suffer, excuse me, to believe on him, last part of the verse, and to suffer. And he links those two together. And all that we want is the belief. We don't want suffering. And I'm speaking to myself tonight because basically all of us down in our hearts are cowards to some extent, but we need to rethink what the New Testament teaches. It is our calling. Suffering often begins, and uh, I'll, I'll make that a separate point, that sometimes suffering begins within our families. Listen to this with new ears. You've read it many times. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. There are people here who are having trouble with their mother-in-laws and their daughter-in-laws and their outlaws. And a person's enemies will be those within his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Families are going to be divided because of the gospel. They have been. They've been divided throughout history. And some of you are struggling within your family because some of you are believers and the rest of the family aren't. And they kind of despise you. They may put up with you, but they think that you're weird. And Jesus said, that's the way it's going to be. So suffering often begins within our own families, suffering for Christ. But we have to prove that we love Christ even more than our mothers and fathers and our sons and daughters and our in-laws. Third, we must recognize that we never suffer alone. We never suffer alone. Paul is persecuting people. Of course, at that time, he's called Saul. He's making sure that they are being put into prison, and he's having Christians killed. And when Jesus converts him on the way to Damascus and comes directly out of heaven... Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? An attack against Christians is an attack against Christ. And Christ feels our suffering. 
because he became one of us and he is able to recognize and to bear our burdens and it says in the book of Hebrews because he became one with us and he indeed is a high priest who intercedes on behalf of our infirmities. So you never suffer alone. Jesus is somehow involved in the suffering. And uh, in Ephesians 3.11, the apostle Paul says, God has an eternal purpose. And he says, we have boldness. And then he says, do not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You suffer well. You lose your job because of faithfulness in Christ. You are ministering to the people around you, to the people in your church. You're testifying to the greatness of God. And really, everyone else is benefiting from your suffering because they see you suffer well. Let me say this, whether it's suffering for Christ or other kinds of suffering, somebody needs to see us suffer well. Some of you are not suffering directly because of your testimony, but because of tragedies, because of heartaches, because of illness, because of whatever. People need to see us suffer well. There's more going on than meets the eye. Number four, suffering strategically positions us for blessing. Now, there's a very famous... uh, passage of scripture about suffering in uh, 1 Peter, as you well know. And remember, 1 Peter was written to Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And Rebecca and I have actually been in Cappadocia, up in Turkey. And uh, the things we saw there, I don't have time to describe for you, but what awesome suffering the believers went through in the first centuries. But look at this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were to happen to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you notice how the emphasis is always on eternity? Like I spoke last night, keeping your eye on the prize that is to come. And then he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, those of you who work in the hospital and you're opposed to abortion and people look down at you and may even insult you, okay, that could happen tomorrow to some of you. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Suffering positions us actually for greater blessing. Suffering positions us. You remember the Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And nobody knows what the thorn is. I mean, there are various theories. There's, you know, he suffered from bad eyesight. He, uh, he was struggling with various issues. Many people think it's Christians. Did you know that Christians can be mean? Maybe not in Michigan, but you'd be surprised at how mean they could be. They could be a thorn in the flesh. So Paul prays three times, oh God, take it away, take it away, take it away. God says, Paul, I've heard your prayer, but I'm not answering it. 
I am going to allow you to suffer so that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And Paul says, I will rather therefore glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. My suffering well gives me a new blessing and positions me for special ministry. During the German Reich, uh, Hitler's Reich, Many Christians, of course, succumbed, and I mentioned yesterday that Einstein spoke highly of the church. But there was one pastor who went to Buchenwald, where Rebecca and I visited that concentration camp, and he wrote and he said this, he said, the time has come when the gospel in Germany can no longer just be preached in words. He said, we need a new alphabet And that new alphabet, he said, is one of suffering. Suffering positions us to be able to do it. You know what the amazing thing is? You think of Paul in prison. Now, if I were in prison, I'd write and send out an email to as many people as are able to read and say, pray for me because I'm in prison. Paul never prayed that he'd be out of prison. Of course we should pray for those who are in prison, but Paul says, help me to be a good witness and I'm witnessing to the guards. Paul saw even in that kind of suffering, you always use what is upon you and the situation that you are in as an opportunity to represent Christ well. There's a fifth reason, and that is the opportunity to show the supreme worth of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a passage I'm going to read to you that I've often pondered. Years ago, I preached on it when I preached through the book of Hebrews, but that was a long time ago. And I want you to listen to this, because I find this astounding. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach. That happened even before the internet and social media. Being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who are so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, We should identify with those. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves have a better position and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I don't know of a single American including myself, who would rejoice in the taking away, what's the word that's used here, of, my, of our property. Uh, I have to reread this here. And affliction sometimes. For you had compassion on those and you accepted the plundering of your property. Boy, I wouldn't accept the the accepting the plundering of my property very well. 
But Paul said, excuse me, the writer of Hebrews said, you did this because you saw this as an opportunity, and this is point number five, to show the supreme worth of Christ. Wow. Luther wrote, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. It makes us reorient all of our values because we so value everything that we possess. Now, I spoke about this in another context and somebody asked me the question. They said, well, does that mean that if somebody comes and wants our property, we just give it to them? No, here in America, we call the police, assuming that they haven't been mercilessly defunded and they are actually there. And we do what we can to protect the property, of course, but even there, Jesus is worth more than our houses and our cars and our bank accounts. I was waiting for an amen. And I go back to Chicago tomorrow without having heard it. Do you see how the early believers looked at things? We hang on to things until our muck knuckles turn white. You know, in Hebrews 11, and I won't turn to this, we, we have all the list of heroes, you know, all the miracles that were done, all the things that took place. And then in the middle of verse 35, you have this change. Verse 35, and I hadn't planned on quoting this. I'll see if it comes to mind. Verse 35, but others endured mockings and scourgings and imprisonment. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, men and women of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered around in sheepskins and goatskins and had hid in the dens and caves of the earth. They also were heroes of faith. They didn't see a miracle. Rebecca and I have been to Rome a number of times. We've walked through the Circus Maximus where Christians were thrown to the lions. There was no angel that came out of heaven and closed the mouths of the lions like the angel closed it for Daniel. The lions came and tore them to bits. And yet the pagans said that when that was happening, it was as if the Christians could see beyond the present, as if they were looking into the sky for something. And they were. They were looking for Jesus. Recently, I preached on the death of Stephen, the first martyr, and he already, before he dies, see Jesus at the right hand of God the Father waiting for him. So it, um, an opportunity to show the supreme worth of Christ. Recently, Rebecca and I were at a dinner at which I spoke, and we met a man from China who told us an incredible story of persecution that his family endured. He was seven years old when his father took him outside and said, son, I am going to be arrested probably and even die for the faith, but you have to be strong and whatever you do, don't deny Christ, even under persecution. We're not thinking in those terms, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, but that's the way 
the believers are, and his father was imprisoned for many years. He eventually got out. But even there in prison, his father did lead some of the people to Christ. Why? Because when they saw him suffer, they said he'll never give in, no matter how often we beat him. Fox's Book of Martyrs, stories of parents whose kids were being tortured, and the parents shouted to the kids, endure it and be faithful to the end. An opportunity to show the supreme worth of Christ, and so does death, by the way. Paul says there in Philippians chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I'd prefer death, but God is keeping me here for you. What a, what a story of looking to eternity instead of being totally focused on time. Suffering, number six, combines shame and glory. Shame and glory. I take this actually from John 12. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, yet for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. So, and then, and I, if I be lifted up, shall draw men to me. The cross was a cross of shame. We uh, wear crosses around our necks as pendants, and we have no idea what the cross is because the cross was a terrible way to die. It was a shameful way to die, often being crucified naked and all of the gore and all of the suffering. And Jesus is saying, the time has come when I'm to be glorified. Glorified on the cross. Yes, glorified there, even amid shame. So maybe I'm not as clear about this as I should be, but I look at this and I say suffering combines both shame and glory, even as the cross of Christ did. And, you know, this idea of carrying our cross into the world sounds like such a marvelous idea until we remember that the cross was carried to Golgotha and Jesus died there. Philippians 1.23 says this, Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Number seven, and this is critical now, even when we are in the hands of the devil, we are still in the hands of God. I preached an entire message on this at the Billy Graham Cove this fall. This is the church in Smyrna. What a fascinating story the church in Smyrna has. But I'm going to ignore the story and simply stick to the text. Jesus said to the people in Smyrna, I know where you live. I know where you live. And then he says this, and I'm trying to remember the exact words, but he says, the devil is going to throw you into prison for 10 days. Now, nobody knows what the 10 days is. Is it literal? Is it figurative? Is it 10 eras? People always ask, how strong is the devil? You came out tonight to this meeting, and at last you're going to find an answer. You've wondered all these years. At last... You can go home and say, we found an answer. 
to the question of how strong Satan is? The answer is he is as strong as God allows him to be and not one whit more. In other words, if he says 10 days, all the forces of hell cannot make it 11. But listen to the rest of the verse. The devil is about to throw you into the hands, I'm about to throw you into the hands of the devil. But be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. You may be in the hands of the devil, but you as a believer are still in the hands of God. John 10. John 10 makes the statement that uh, we are in God's hands. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they will never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hands. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all and no one will pluck them out of my Father's hands. So you have the hands of the Father, you have the hands of the Son, hands in harmony. There was a martyr by the name of uh, John Hus. Hus was preaching the gospel in Czechoslovakia, in Prague actually, it wasn't called Czechoslovakia at that time, but the Czech Republic as we call it today, Prague. The Pope doesn't like it. He is sent to uh, Constance for a trial that was taking place. Now there was a council at Constance, so fascinating because There were two popes ruling and it was a little embarrassing and they actually elected a new one and the other two didn't resign. Now there were three popes and that didn't look good, let's just say. uh, But there was a trial there for Hus. Now he didn't want to go to Constance. But good King Wenceslas at the Feast of Stephen, who was the brother of the emperor Sigismund, said, we'll give you safe conduct. You'll be able to go there and you'll be able to come back. So Hus goes to Constance. When he gets there, the emperor decides that he doesn't have to keep his word to a heretic. And Hus is taken and there's a crown put on his head that says, we commit your soul to the devil. Hus said, I commit my soul to God. In the Czech language, the name Hus means goose. As a matter of fact, he used to sign his letters, the goose. Before he dies, he makes the statement, as he's taken to the flames, you can cook this goose, but after me in a hundred years a swan will arise and him you will not silence. A hundred and two years later, Luther nails his 95 theses on the castle church door in Wittenberg and expressly believes that he is the fulfillment of Hus's prophecy. And today we still use that expression, don't we? We cook, they cooked his goose. Now, the point that I'm trying to make though is, the Catholics said, we commit your soul to the devil. But Hus said, I commit my soul to God. So there are times when we are thrown into the devil's sieve Niemöller said this to his congregation in Berlin before he went off to a concentration camp. But even when we are in the hands of the devil, I find this interesting that the Bible says wicked hands crucified Jesus. But there comes a time when wicked hands can only do so much. 
and then the hands of God take over and wicked hands crucified Jesus but the last words on his lips on the cross were into thy hands I commit my spirit. So dark times may come but the believers are in the hands of God. Here's a very important point for those of you who counsel people who are filled with anger and won't forgive. All suffering will be adjudicated by the Supreme Court. All suffering will be adjudicated by the Supreme Court. In other words, all things that have been wronged are going to be retried. That's why Paul could say, dearly beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Let God take care of it. Now, I remember a woman came to me and her husband had left her and gone south and wasn't making payments for the children. She had to have a job and take care of three kids. And I was asking her to lay down her bitterness toward her husband because that which you do not forgive, you pass on. And she said, you expect me to lay down my bitterness. But there he is, he's earning money, he's not helping me. He wronged me, he ran off with somebody else. And now I'm supposed to forgive. What's the answer to this woman? First Peter chapter 2, where Peter says this regarding Christ. Who when he was reviled reviled not in return. When he suffered, he uttered no threats, but get this now, don't ever forget it, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus said, I'm willing to commit my issue to the supreme judge because that is going to be retried in the future. And so you don't have to think to yourself that when you forgive, you're giving up on injustice. Justice will be satisfied, it's just that you have to wait for it. This was a great blessing to the folks at ADF because some of those lawyers had fought some very interesting cases and lost them. And I said, uh, they're going to be retried, this isn't the end. All sin is going to be paid for, either laid upon Christ and at the judgment seat of Christ, by the way, Christians also are going to be judged. Now, this is separate. I wrote a book about the judgment seat of Christ called uh, Your Eternal Reward. Do you honestly think that a man who leaves his wife, runs off, and is a Christian, and uh, goes with somebody else and abandons his wife, do you think that when they die, Jesus is going to say, oh, we're going to let bygones be bygones, go into eternity, hold hands? No. That is going to be adjudicated. Now this morning I talked about the righteousness of Christ being committed to us legally, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline disobedient Christians. And the more we resolve here on earth, the less there's to be resolved up there, but all kinds of situations are going to be taken care of. In other words, we work toward justice, but even when we don't see it on earth, we are confident that justice will be served to all these issues someday. So give up your bitterness. It's not a surrender of justice. 
It's punting the ball to the Supreme Court, the supreme lawgiver of the land, namely God. So remember, all suffering has to be adjudicated. And it says in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, all those who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to him as onto a faithful creator. In other words, you're suffering according to the will of God, you entrust your case to the higher court, the highest court, namely to God, to your creator. And that's the way you endure it. Next, very important, your suffering for Christ will be amply compensated is the word I want. You will be compensated. Paul says, the suffering of this present world is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's Romans 8. Now, if you go to 2 Corinthians, he says something similar. He says, you know, our bodies are wasting away, and as I look at you tonight, I can certainly affirm that. (laughs) Your bodies are wasting away, but um, that's okay. We're being renewed in the inner man day by day. And then he says, for our suffering indicates a weight of affliction that cannot be compared with glory. All that to say this, the imagery is a scale. And some of us are young enough to know that we actually remember when they had scales like this. You had a balance, you put a pound of uh, iron on this side, and then you had a pound of meat on the other. And when they balanced, you knew that you had a pound of meat over here because the weight on the other side was a pound. What Paul is saying is take all your suffering, every bit of it, a divorce, unjust situations, um, all of the cancer and the difficulty and the abuse and everything you've endured, take all of it and put it on the scale over here. And then on the other side of the scale, you put the eternal weight of glory. And Paul said the scale will go plunk It will be like a human hair on one side and an elephant on the other, not even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So endure suffering well. You'll be compensated. And it's very clear that Christians who go through persecution and live in persecution areas, they're always talking about heaven. We aren't because, you know, we still have it pretty good but they're talking about heaven because they know that the more suffering, the more glory. They understand that, and those are lessons we have to learn from them. We are called to enter into the suffering of others. I think this is eight or nine, depending on how you count them. We are called to enter into the suffering of others. In Hebrews 13, verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated. That's why I get the voice of the martyrs, that magazine. Now, I have to confess, I don't always read it, 
But every once in a while I read it to remind myself of believers in prison, remind myself that not everybody has it as easy as we have it here in America, and to keep asking myself the question, how would I endure under those kinds of consequences? Now the question is, do Christians sometimes buckle and deny the faith under persecution? Absolutely. In the early church there was a controversy. When persecution came, some denied the faith, and then after the persecution was over, they wanted to be reinstated in the church. So the question is, what do you do with them? There were some people who said, of course they should be reinstated. The first pope, who was believed to be Peter, he denied Christ under pressure. He said, I don't even know him, and he was welcomed back into the fold. Of course we should welcome them back. Others said, not so fast. They are a bad witness to our young people. They're saying that under persecution you can deny Christ and then you can bounce back. And that's a bad witness. We don't think that we should allow them back in the church. And so there was a controversy as to what to do with those who denied Christ. And I don't know exactly whether it was fully resolved. I want to tell you the story of three martyrs. I love this story because I've actually been in Oxford where this happened. Now, many of you know I've written a book on the German Reformation. It's called Rescuing the Gospel. And um, I mentioned to you that I lead tours to the sites of the Reformation. I've lectured at the Luther sites and so forth. But going to England and leading a tour there to the sites of the Reformation three or four years ago was most fascinating. Oh, I can't even enter into how fascinating that story is. So I'll have to give you just the story of the three martyrs. Henry VIII, fascinating creature. Oh, you know, I had six wives, beheaded only two of them, and uh, so forth, but uh, some of you could have smiled at that, but you didn't, that's fine. All right, he rules, and uh, Bloody Mary, Mary actually follows him, and she believes that it's her responsibility to bring England back under the authority of the Pope and so forth. Her father was, was a devout Catholic, Henry VIII was a devout Catholic, but he had allowed Protestantism to grow in part because he declared himself to be head of the church because the Pope wouldn't grant him an annulment and all those other interesting things. And uh, I have to tell you this. <laughs> this is really... Henry VIII left a ton of money for all kinds of masses that had to be said for him when he died because he knew he committed a number of sins. He not only beheaded two of his wives, but a lot of other people he didn't like. So he knew, knew he needed a lot of masses, and he also wanted to have a big sarcophagus built over his tomb so that in future generations people would say, oh, look at this beautiful, beautiful architecture here. Henry VIII is buried here. So he leaves all this money, he dies, and then Edward rules for a little while, six months or whatever, 
and Edward and his advisors who were Protestants needed the money for other things. So when you go to Windsor Castle today, this was the high point of the tour. You walk down the aisle that you have seen many times on TV. You walk right over the grave of Henry VIII. He has no special markings except right there. And you think, well, where in the world is this big monument that was supposed to be built to him? Don't ever think that the people who follow you in life are going to necessarily honor you the way in which you think you should be honored. If you want to know how long you're going to be honored after you die, put your fist in a bucket of water and pull it out and see how long it takes for the water to fill the hole. (laughs) Maybe it'll take a little longer than that. So, Bloody Mary from Catherine of Aragon She ascends to the throne and she wants to turn England back. So she kills about 300 Protestants. But there were three that were very famous and they were put to death in Oxford. One was Ridley, who had been the Bishop of London. One was Latimer, who was the preacher, the court preacher, who preached the gospel to Henry. But Henry liked him and didn't cut his head off. And then there was Cranmer. The first two, Ridley and Latimer, were taken to a place in Oxford and you can go to the actual place where the burning took place. It's on a street and uh, they have a monument there. This is where the burning took place. And you remember Ridley was in such torment because the fire wasn't hot enough. So there he is, he begins to burn, his torso begins to burn, but he's not dying and he's crying out, give me more fire, give me more fire, oi, oi, oi. Latimer dies more quickly in the flames, but Latimer, you remember, and you should know this story from church history, shouts to to, um, Ridley, Ridley, play the man, today we are lighting a fire in England that shall never go out. So they die, but Cranmer, who had been appointed as Bishop of our, of, of, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, who actually was a Protestant. He, under pressure, he was asked to watch what happened and he saw their suffering. He denied the faith. He wrote six documents that says, I now realize in effect that Protestantism is wrong, the Pope is right, the Catholic Church, I deny the faith. Mary, of course, was pleased, but she still wanted to put him to death because he negotiated the divorce of her mother from Henry. So she's going to have him burned anyway. He's brought to St. Mary's Church in Oxford. And we were there, and we saw what was known as Cranmer's uh, Pillar because there is a niche in this pillar where they had set up a stage whereby Cranmer could be brought and the whole church is filled with people who are absolutely delighted because he is going to stand there and then he's going to be taken out and burned. Cranmer shocks everybody by saying, I denied the faith under pressure and I now recant my recantation. And I die as a Protestant with my faith in Jesus Christ. And let this hand that signed 
the recantation be the first to burn. Well, the church is in an uproar in anger because these Catholics had gathered to celebrate the death of this man, even though he had denied the faith and um, became a Catholic. But he dies as a Protestant, and so they're trying to convince him otherwise. They drag him out a couple of blocks as to where that fire took place, and he held out his hand until it was a cinder and said, this hand, this hand, this hand, may it burn first. And there Cranmer died finally as a hero of the Protestant faith. And by the way, if you're Anglican, you know that it was Cranmer who wrote the book of prayer and the 39 articles and so forth. Fascinating stuff. But my point is simply this, that yes, there have been some who have denied the faith but there are also those who feared God more than they feared the fire. And three other men who fit into that category, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, regarding bowing to the image, O king, we don't have any desire to talk with you long about this matter. If it be so, God is able to deliver us, and we actually believe that he will, Chapter 3, verse 18, but if not. Three words, but if not. The greatest expression of faith in the Bible, in my opinion. If not, let it be known unto you, O king, we will not bow. The war, World War I, and you have the war taking place over in France, and right now the name of that battle is out of my mind. Uh, what was that battle over in France? Pardon? Normandy. Normandy, yes, we've actually been to Normandy, but um, I can't believe it. It's a senior moment that happens to me, everyone. Pardon? Argonne, no. Pardon? Yeah. <laughs> Shall we just choose the truth, whatever truth we like? <laughs> but anyway, it's a battle that Churchill won by sending out boats to people to bring the soldiers back. Pardon? Dunkirk. Yes. Let's say it's Dunkirk. I like that. <laughs> the commander sends a telegraph to England with three words. But if not, now in those days, England still had a Christian consensus. So everybody knew Daniel 3.18. But if not, what he meant was, no matter whether we're going to be killed or not, we're not surrendering. We're not surrendering. We want God to deliver us. And by the way, the battle turned out pretty good. The Nazis did not uh, organize and kill the allies like they had intended to. But, um, of course, some were killed. But he said, if not, we will not surrender. And that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. Oh, God, we believe it. And today we say, oh, God, we believe that you're able to deliver this young mother from cancer because her kids need her. But if not we will still go on believing you no matter what.
We fear God more than we do the fire, more than we do ridicule, more than we do joblessness. We trust him and faithfulness to him all the way to the finish line. I'm going to close in prayer, and after I close in prayer, the meeting is over. Rebecca and I want to say it's been an absolutely delight to be here, to get to know some of you, to get to know your pastors. And uh, think of us, pray for us. Normally, I sign books and have an autograph thing, but because of COVID, we're not going to do that tonight. But thank you so much, and even for those of you who may be listening on the internet and so forth, we're, we're glad that we could have this connection And I pray that something that was said would be a blessing and uh, be in your mind for as long as you live. Let me pray. Our Father, we want to thank you today and we pray that we may get to the point in our lives where we aren't yet, but may we get to the point where when we are suffering for Christ, we might rejoice rather than complain. Over and over again, your word says rejoice if you are involved in suffering for Jesus. We have lived such easy lives that we're not used to that, but we pray for those whose jobs are on the line. We pray for those, Father, who are being marginalized in our cancel culture because of faithfulness. We ask that each of us might answer the simple question, what does faithfulness look like in a nation that has lost its way. Help us to suffer well for your blessed name and consider it to be a badge of honor. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. And all of you are dismissed. Thank you.